friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor to be joined today by the original L.A. Noiseworthy, my dad. Welcome to the show, Dad. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, and Dad. you know what? What's that? I'm not the original. Okay, you're Dad's, so you're the second. My dad, yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. That's correct. Okay, so, right. my, uh, yeah, for the record, my listeners need to know that there are four L-A-N initials in the family, my grandfather, my dad, myself, and our second-born child, Adeline. Her name is actually Laura. So uh, I don't know why we, we need the listeners to know that, but they do. They know that now, and that's very important. And Dad, I had to have you back on the podcast. It's been a while. There's a lot of stuff that's happened. But we started talking psychology last week. I got a text from you. You had a, a, an expression of how heartbroken you were that you didn't talk to me about Carl Jung more. And we, we wanted to fix that. We wanted you to have the chance to come back on. And so we'll get into that in a second. But like, it's been a couple of years since we've done a podcast together, Dad. A lot has happened in the last couple of years. That's uh, right. Yes, a lot has happened. Uh, yeah, obviously, listeners of the podcast, uh, my mom, uh, my dad's wife, uh, passed away, and obviously that's been, uh, that, uh, that's a lot has happened, and uh, my dad since got remarried, uh, which is a reminder to everyone on the show, it's important to be a part of a small group at church, because you never know <laughs> if you need to eventually marry someone else, you like, if you have a small group, you kind of have a dating pool right in front of you, so uh, that's an important reminder Uh for, I, I, those are like big things that have happened, and but now you're back on the podcast. I am, I am, and yeah, major transitions, and actually, I guess that's part of what I want to talk about. Yeah, transitions. There's a lot of changing that's happened. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm using changed. a I'm using a story uh, this Sunday from a conversation with Richard Rohr a couple years ago. When he had his book, um, I think it's called uh, Cosmic Christ, maybe, and he had just gotten diagnosed with uh, his cancer coming back. He had had a heart attack, and so we spent a lot of time talking about mortality, and it was real meaningful, and uh, I've gone back and listened to it a couple times uh, as I get ready to talk about uh, death at uh, church, uh, which would be the day before this comes out. But he also talked about his dad. And I don't know if you remember this, but his, he talked about going back to Cincinnati, Ohio, when he was uh, a young priest, and his father was 65 and had just retired. And he talked about on the podcast how his dad felt like what he called blue, which would probably be how he was describing a little bit of depression, because for so long, like he worked with his hands and he built things and did things, and then now all of a sudden he wasn't making money, he wasn't building, and he had like this loss of identity. And like so, also like retirement, like it sounds like that's a pretty big transition for a lot of people as well. And that's your you, you saw clients this afternoon, but for the most part, like you're pretty much retired as well. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Um, again, I'm going to be really personal, uh, but uh, I retired early from ACU in order to be with your mom. And uh, at that point, we were a little hopeful that she was maybe going to uh, improve the quality of her life, and unfortunately that did not happen. So retirement, in comparison, uh, just kind of fell by the wayside. But traditionally, retirement is a loss of identity. It's a loss of power. It's a loss of status. Mm -hmm. um, 
And if you don't have something to replace it with, then it can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I fell into the loss of your mom. Mm -hmm. And after that, uh, trying to make adjustments about that, retirement, again, uh, did not seem quite as significant. And since then, here we are now, over two years out, trying to rebuild a life. Uh, it's really interesting that uh, Diane, my new wife, she retired after 45 years uh, being a dental hygienist and worked. I, I didn't really know her as a working person and she didn't know me. So that says to me that uh, retirement has to be put in a certain perspective. Yeah. And if it's the only thing going on in your life, then it's going to be a major, major loss. Yeah. I think if you weren't my dad, my follow-up question would have been, if you retired thinking you're going to spend more time with your wife and then life doesn't go the way that you guys imagined, uh, did you think about like going back to work? Did you try to like think of replacing it with something else? Um, that's a weird question to ask my dad, but let's just go with it anyway. Okay. Well, I'm uh, again, I'm going to tell you kind of what went on through my mind that uh, through that deep grief, it wasn't that I was suicidal, but I do think a person that is grief struck actually has to make a conscious decision about whether they want to live or not. And by mm -hmm. live, I mean in the existential way of taking risks, stepping out in faith, uh, being in the present, and it took me a little while to be able to answer that question, but the answer became clear. I did. There's a lot of people my age. I'm 73 now. There's a lot of people at my age. They don't want to take a risk anymore. And so they withdraw. Hmm. I decided that's not what I was best for me or what I believe God was calling me to do. Mm-hmm. When you said you had to make a choice to on the existential category of living or dying, Level. not not mm -hmm. um, like what are choices that you make? Obviously, like risking getting out there. Like, what what do you mean by making choices? Again, this is weird. I'm going to ask you to pretend like you're a normal person, but like <laughs> this is a, like we've talked about this stuff. But I'm going to. Hey, I am a normal person. Well, I, that's a yeah. different that's a different that's podcast, right there. <laughs> but like, what do you mean, like having to make the choice to? Well, um, sleepwalking is a term existentialists use, where you get into a routine, a, a pattern, and you uh, actually basically emotionally fall asleep, and you just go through the motions. You don't uh, try to step out and um, do something new. You try to hold on to familiarity. And uh, there are a lot of people that take that path. And I decided that was not the better thing to do. How, how do you... I decided... Yeah. No, like, finish that sentence, so Once you decided... Well, once I decided that I wanted to live, then the question for me was, do I want to do this by myself? And for me, the answer was, it's not good for a man to be alone. Mm -hmm. It's not good for a person to be alone. Mm -hmm. And so when someone like makes that decision to 
like to keep on going to to keep living. They're opening themselves back up. They're willing to take risks. I mean, is that what what it is? Like you you had to. I mean, to enter into a new relationship, like there has to be some level of like anxiety of wow, like I, I don't know how this is going to work out, or if I open myself up to this, am I going to lose again? Like like losing a, a, a oh, spouse, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, in fact, yeah, that was uh, a very big part of it. Is uh, as painful it is. Not that you can go through as if you come out on the other side and there are, uh, and there's no residual ongoing dimensions of grief. Uh, it's an ongoing process, and I think it's a lifelong process that you carry with you. Uh, you do have to recognize, or I had to recognize, that I could be opening myself up to having to experience that all over again. And a safer, more conservative way would be to say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take that kind of chance. Um, but that didn't seem like living for me. It didn't seem like uh, the best way that I could fulfill the energy and the focus and a direction for my life. So mm -hmm. I decided that I wanted to still be able to reach out and help other people, and having a partner to do that with seemed like the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I mean, you could have said like you just fell in love and you found like the like, <laughs> but you're an Enneagram Five, and so you're going to talk like this. So I mean, that's <laughs> that's well, that is true. Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so obviously there's been a lot going on and a lot have changed and since we last talked and uh, we need to get you back on the podcast partly to uh, amend and to deal with the Carl Jung issue because I still feel like I'm saying his name wrong. Am I saying it wrong when I say it? No, Jung, Jung is Jung. I think the most common way. Yeah. Well, okay, what is the right way to say it though? No, Jung. Yeah. Jung. yeah a lot of people call it Jung but it's, I think it's Carl Jung. Okay, and Union so psychology. And so obviously we talked about that because last week on the podcast Richard Beck was on and we're talking about Jordan Peterson who uh, also is a psychologist like you and your former coworker slash co former student Richard Beck. Um, and so uh, a lot of Peterson is influenced because he's a union psychologist. A lot of the work that he's doing comes from that filter of experiencing the world and uh, you regretted not teaching me more about him. <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> Somewhat of a joke there, but yeah. Uh, okay, I'm going to make a very loose association. Carl Jung and his archetypes and what he calls the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. The collective unconscious, like Richard said, is tapping back into our ancestral past, mm -hmm. and he believes that we're it's it's a spiritual dimension, and there are several different personalities. Uh, shadows, uh, male and female, collective memories. Uh, I'm going to go all the way back to the fall and say that on some level, I think a lot of things that, uh, that affect me the way I think about where we are ties in with consequences of the fall. Okay, and so... Jung has this archetype, and you're trying to say that there is 
like a, a deeper archetype or the archetype that's underneath that, or I don't know how you would want to say that, but that you're as a as a Christian, as a person of faith, like the way that you're interpreting the archetype goes back to um, Adam, Eve. I mean, when we hear those words, I think sometimes we miss the um, archetypal language that's used to describe them. Adam, man, Eve, woman. Like when, when you have a more, if we're calling them human, like th- that reminds us like this is a bigger story than getting the question about, okay, is this a man or a woman? No, the point, this is all men and all women. And so you're seeing that as the archetype that we're all living into. Correct, correct. And, I, and, and to me, one of the things that's been interesting to think about is what were the consequences of the fall? And in Genesis 3, it talks about a number of things. It addresses Adam and it addresses Eve. And I think one of the first questions that I ask about that is, are these two discrete cognitive categories? These are consequences specifically and exclusively for Adam. And then here's another list that are exclusively... uh, uh, about Eve. Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I interrupt for a second? Answer, Hold on, before you give yeah. your answer, you said cognitive categories. What is a cognitive category? Uh, it, it is the way that, it, it's like a paradigm. It's the way okay. you think about things. And uh, by these two, w- one way of talking about dichotomous categories is to say that they're mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying they are not exclusively uh, exclusive. In fact, I see them um, in a way to where this list, there are some things that are specific to women, such as childbearing will be more sure. difficult. But in reality, uh, child raising is more difficult for men as well. So I think there were some consequences to men even though he addressed Eve specifically. And I think the one that's the most interesting to me is the one about, and the woman will serve the man. And I think that that's, that's uh, the Garden of Eden to me represents yep. the first time we are acknowledging that humans have decided to act independent of God. And here are... St- a list of things that are the consequence. And the, the next question for me in that situation is to ask the question, is God being prescriptive or is he being descriptive? Yeah. And I think he's describing what is going to happen when we act out on our own and rather than him being prescriptive, being punitive, um, uh, causing yeah. uh, the consequences. These are more the natural consequences of of who we are as humans. Yeah, I think. But if, to me, if I can jump in there, I, I think part of what what you need to like as you think of the story is the story, like the first creation story, second creation story, and then the fall, like first three chapters of Genesis. These aren't written like to the first people who were born and going, hey, this is how you understand life. But this is written to people who are already been around for a long time. And you have the Israelites who've probably heard the creation stories of the Babylonians as they've been around them, probably um, in exile. And they have one story that, that they've been told by the Babylonians. There's their creation myth. 
uh, which has a lot of echoes to the first creation story in the way that uh, the deep and uh, the word deep is actually Tiamat, which is one of the two primordial deities that get in a fight with a Babylonian creation myth. And so obviously like there's echoes in there. If, if you, um, if you want to Google that, you'll see that a bunch of information real quick on, on the old internet. But so if you think of the story as like, people who've already been living and then they're trying to figure out how do we get where we are and all of a sudden you hear like the list of hey the relationship between men and women is broken it's not like it's supposed to be like like you're saying it becomes very descriptive okay this is this is the situation we're in where you have polygamy is rampant in the jewish culture at that time obviously uh the 12 tribes of israel come from abram's family and abram had more than one wife and you know clearly some of those relational things had some problems um, all the way up the lineage of the Jewish patriarchs, and so you go, oh, this is this is this is the story we find ourselves in, and this is why it is what it is right now. And so, yeah, I think your point about descriptive versus prescriptive is really uh, spot on, right there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I uh, now I'm going to make a jump. And Let's you, jump. We Let's can try it. to go back and fill in some of the gaps here, but okay. we've laid a stage, and I am eventually going to get back to transitions. But I, oh, you're I tying this all together. You got a plan here, Dad? You got a plan? Oh well, I don't know about a no. I don't really oh, have a okay. plan, but I, I but, like it. Let's but go. I thought about this. Before. Okay. Okay. I like it. But I, I do think this this uh, animosity between men and women. Uh, in sociology, there's a conflict theory. Uh, there's a functional, structural, functional theory about the relationship between men hold, and women. Hold on, question, Dad. And Raising my hand I here. I can see both of those two theories. But you said there's a conflict between men and women. Like you, where are you substantiating that? Like, because I don't like I go home, men and a woman and three female little little human beings. I don't feel like there's conflict between us. When you're saying conflict between men and women, like where are you going? Like where are you, where are you deriving that from? All right. Again, let me. Uh, I think it's not limited between men and women. I think this is part of the condition of being human, and it's our own selfish ambition. And inevitably, you and I, everyone is going to come in conflict with another person. Now, there are gotcha. ways of maturity that we grow through that and we become more like Christ and we, we manage that more effectively. And part of it is reducing our selfish ambition. Mm-hmm. But that, and that's why I was saying those two categories describing the consequences of the fall are not exclusive to some list to men and another list exclusive to women. But I think this describes the condition of humanity. I think yeah. that's where we are. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think a manifestation of that that's relevant in today's society about the uh, roles of men and women have to do with uh, how we look at patriarchy in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to defer to you as the you're the master of divinity. So you mm. know all about this. Okay, a little tongue-in-cheek there, but... I don't um, think there's... I think that's a pretty accurate description. I, I think it's pretty spot I on. Ask, <laughs> I, I think one of the questions is, is patriarchy God's design, or is patriarchy the background? Is it yeah. the culture that was read into it or written into the story 
because the writers are human and God gave them the freedom to write from their human point of view, even though his message is still untainted. His message is still out there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's obviously the filter that we all have to be asking, like, is this the background for the story or is this the backbone of humanity? And once we got our nice alliterations in there, then I'll go forward with the answer and say, obviously, I, I don't think polygamy was God's design when you see Judaism having such a central role for so many of the main characters being polygamous. I don't think that's part of it. And But yet God is working through that in the same way, I think, the way that men and women, like there's strife, like that's that's consequence of the brokenness of humanity since we've chosen to step away from uh, the world as God initially created and designed it. So yeah, I think we look at that and... Uh, sometimes we're uh, amiss to the fact that we're looking at at uh, consequences and assuming that that is the ideal, and that's uh, I think that's a little bit short sighted. So yeah. So yeah, uh, uh, I haven't said this to uh, well. I'll just say it. Yeah. So my answer, the best answer I can come up with, is patriarchy is the background. And I think yeah. it's a manifestation of that rivalry, that tension, that conflict between people. And I think that uh, uh, when, when a person has the opportunity to take advantage of another individual, if they have self, selfish ambition, you're going to have some kind of hierarchy. You're going to have some kind of structure that yeah, yeah. one and obviously person you... at a decided advantage. Well, you're, you're look, using the language a lot from Philippians 2, which is a church in conflict. And I, I think the way the conflict works is you probably have the two main leaders of the church, Yodi and Syndicate, and they're kind of getting fight back and forth. And so Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Because there's rivalry that goes on. Now both of those people have the same gender. Um, but on a more substantial level, like what I hear you doing is in the same way that Carl Jung has his archetypes that he, he reads the world through, you're reading humanity through this archetype and using uh, the Christian story as a way to give us language for what we're experiencing around us, which includes the conflict, uh, not just between man and woman, but just the conflict of humanity in general, that it it goes back to this. Am I picking up what you're putting down? Yeah, that's it. All right, now let me make another move, and that would be to bring in Adler, Alfred Adler, and he's another Freudian along with Jung, okay? And his okay, so let's so Sigmund Freud. Hold on, hold on, Dad. Give me, give me, give me the background for this. So Sigmund Freud, Godfather, kind of modern psychology. Is that fair for a lot of people? And so he's uh, the Godfather. And so no, yes, yes. no, you don't like that. Yes, we're yes, getting, okay, yeah, well, right. so uh, he he is the uh, he's the the grandfather of psychotherapy, psychoanalytic, okay. psychodynamic okay. approach. And you know, I, Carl Jung and Adler, Alfred Adler, are both neo-Freudians. They've rethought Freud, and they've put in their own dimensions to psychodynamic approach. Okay, and so Adler has, he, his some of work is pretty prominent Adler's, right now. Yeah, yeah and he, he focuses on inferiority. Yeah. And so I think that, to me, that plays into the way I, I see this big picture. So he, he's the guy that came up with inferiority complex. That's where we get that, that is correct. jargon from him. Okay, so Adler's right. inferiority right. conflict, 
And so how does that play into this? Well, I, you know, Carl Jung would probably talk more about its archetypal <clears throat> influences. Adler talks about it more environmentally, that a young child is being raised by parents that are more physically, mentally uh, capable of controlling the child, and so therefore the child takes yeah. on this inferiority. I think this inferiority goes back to the fall, is kind of how I'm tying that back in. And I think Carl Jung would put that into archetypal language. I would assume that most of my inferiority issues come from that time that I fell off the table thinking I was jumping onto like a futon on the ground, but you were on the ground physically dominating Josh while you're wrestling and you kicked it out. And so instead of jumping onto this big soft cushion, it was the hard floor that I fell on. And so that I think is what Adler is referring to where father is abusing one child and ensuring that the other is going to have a crash landing onto a, a, an unpadded floor, Right. Is that, are you saying the ideology of the brain damage that you've experienced is that particular fall? I wouldn't say there's brain damage. I just think it's more like emotional damage <laughs> that is... Emotional scar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but, okay, so... A little bit. Yeah, I don't know. So we're, you're talking about archetypes. Jung is the archetype. We talked about Peterson last week. Peterson has this, this language where very, this absolutist sort of... Uh, you know, you're going to hell whether he's talking about like an eternal damnation, probably not, but he's talking more of like there are consequences to not doing what you're supposed to and not being a man and not, you know, stepping up and taking over the world. And Adler, you'd say, would like would twist that and say there's a different perspective on this, that it's more inferior complex that comes from childhood, you know, trauma. And you know, for some of us, we're going, okay, like, cool, there's different psychologists that have different perspective on, on why things are broken and how we don't interact with each other. And, you know, some of that seems, for, for some of us, it's like, okay, well, is this navel-gazing? Like, I can't figure out what it exactly is underneath the surface, but what I do know is that, like, I'm trying to figure out what it means for me to be a man, or I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a woman, or I'm trying to support my beloved person who is, you know, whatever. And, I, like, okay, well, what do we do about it? Like, how do, how do we... How do we not let this stuff cripple us regardless of how, how it appeared in our life? Well, let me, let me postpone an answer to that. Be sure and ask me that again, but I think there's an interim step I want to make. Is it Adler then basically says there's about five different positions that we take to try to deal with that inferiority. And I'll just mention three okay. of them. One of them is mastery. Another one okay. is control. And another one is pleasure. And so what I'm suggesting... Dad, that was in my that book. Adler, that was literally... In, Dad, that's literally befriending your well, monsters. I, I like, I did I, all those things. You asked... Yeah, and you asked me about it, and I sent that information to you, remember? Yeah, yeah. I know. So I'm just trying to... That's a great book. Yes. You're, I, you're, you and I are tracking that's perfectly. What, so... That's, so the main thing it, is it just go by my book. completely... Yeah, your book... That's Com uh, My book completely book. answers People it. People need to buy it. Yeah. Say that again? Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're doing a you said it doesn't completely answer. Yeah, the the podcast completely answers everything. No, no, no. To the point the that the no, book... your book answered it. Your book did a there great is. job That's with what it. Adler yeah. didn't answer it well. That He's an idiot. Or at yeah. least he's, being, he's not trying to give a solution. He's just saying, this oh. is what we tend to do. And so yes. here we find ourselves in the 21st century 
people are trying to master, and it doesn't mean necessarily dominate other people, uh, the tendency to master your job, to master, yeah. uh, to become an expert, to, to be competent is a way to replace a sense of inferiority. Mm-hmm. Control, which is an, uh, a, a, yeah. an illusion, a delusion, uh, but that's another way that we try to deal with that lack uh, is to replace it with what we assume is some kind of control. Some people just pleasure themselves to a point that they're distracted from inferiority. Okay, so with all of that, for mm-hmm. me, one of the next moves is if these are some of the tendencies that we have, then I, I want to understand what were some of the, now this is out of cognitive psychology, what are some of the core beliefs that we hold that help us to deal with the consequences of being human and, the, and if you will, the fall? Um, and specifically with inferiority. And I, from a cognitive point of view, you and I have these core beliefs that we learn from our idiosyncratic experiences, from our family of origin, and they are absolutist kind of statements that life must be fair. Um, I'm either... Um, worthwhile or I'm unworthy but they are Mm -hmm. very um, absolute kind of statements that give no exceptions at all and Mm -hmm. now going back to the whole idea of transitions that you and I we can hold a variety of core beliefs and when we go through a transition some of those core beliefs are self-enhancing some of those core beliefs are self-defeating. So we have certain beliefs that are beneficial for us to have and others that are very toxic for us that prevent our uh, growth, maturity, uh, thriving, flourishing, whatever you want to say. How do we go through figuring out which ones of these that we're holding on to that are, that are hamstringing our ability to, to flourish and others that are, are not? Like how do, we, how do we listen to those? Well, I, uh, there's kind of a downward out, uh, arrow technique where we start off with our automatic thoughts. Whenever an event occurs, the assumption is in cognitive psychology, events do not cause your intense feelings. It's, it's the what response you to think it. or yeah. believe that cause that. So you you have uh, how do you how do you learn? what your core beliefs are, well, you, you look at those ad- automatic thoughts and then underli- underlying those automatic thoughts are certain kinds of assumptions. You have mm-hmm. a syllogism. If A happened plus B, then C must be true. And sometimes that's just completely not correct at all. It's an irrational, dysfunctional thought, and it makes it more difficult for us to adjust to it. And okay, so underlying, let me, okay. Well, I was going to say, like, put the brass tacks on this one here. Um, when I was 24, my first job, uh, a lot of drama there, 
things fell apart at the church, and eventually they said, hey, they couldn't, they couldn't pay me. And they said, hey, we just, because of, we lost you know, a third of our contribution and all this, we, we, you know, we can't afford to pay any longer. And I would shorthand just say, oh, I just got fired. And you were very insistent. I remember this 20 years later. I'm going, now, did you get fired or did they have to let you go because of you know, financial concerns? It seems like you were trying to create, um, like reframing how I was understanding that. And my initial response maybe wasn't the right way to, to process it, but you were trying to, um, like filter the way I responded? Like, how, how would you describe that? Give you some, yeah, give you some language to think about it. Um, and unfortunately, there are reasons to have very negative emotions. I mean, that's, you can't okay. live in this life without having negative emotions. On the other hand, you mm-hmm. can have certain thoughts that are very self-defeating that cripple you and that are just not true because they move they can move you to a point to where you're saying you're totally inferior now we go back to adler that you're completely inferior the reason that job ended was because of your inferiority you were not competent you were not capable and those are absolute thoughts and i and so part of what i was doing was challenging is that really true is that why that transition occurred in your life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I can ask you a personal question. So at the beginning, you talked about the transition you went through and uh, didn't realize we were going to get that personal, but since we already went there, let's go ahead and ask the follow-up question then. Uh, as you went through this major life change, you, you know, lost your wife of you know decades that you guys were together. Um, 48 years. Like, did you find yourself having to go through these, these thoughts and going, hey... Um, like there's some absolute thoughts that are coming through my head that I need to process? Oh, absolutely. But it, they didn't just occur then because you know the history that uh, she was ill for 18 years. She was in bed for almost 18 years. And mm-hmm. my grieving started a couple of years into it when I began to realize I could not rescue her. I'm a Texan. I grew up. I was born in Dallas, Texas, and I took on some core beliefs that a man must take care of his wife. If you're a good husband, you will rescue your wife. And that's an Mm -hmm. absolute statement. It's a core belief. And I found myself feeling very helpless. And by Hmm. processing that, I began to realize, wait a minute, that's not a self enhancing thought and not only that it's not a true thought that my job is not to defeat illness I don't have the capability to do that it did tap into my inferiority but I can live Mm -hmm. with the fact that I'm not competent to heal a sick person on the other hand if I am an absolute failure because I didn't rescue my wife I could not deal with that heavy negative burden. So I had to process hmm. that and, and reframe that in a way that, that uh, said it wasn't my fault. The mm-hmm. first two weeks after your mom passed, I felt very guilty. And this core belief was just in my face. And so I had to struggle with it, with it for months 
to be able to get that quietened and reframed. Hmm. And so you got it quiet and you reframed it. What are things that helped you and maybe what are the things that you've seen other people use to help reframe and quiet voices that are deleterious for their, uh, their own sanity? Well, I think, I think having a support group is really important. And I do have two mm-hmm. really close spiritual friends and I was able to bounce that off of both of them and just by them asking questions individually they asked me questions that helped me to see it from different perspectives and each of them moved me a little bit closer to realizing that I actually was holding myself responsible for something that I that I didn't have the capability of owning up to that it was not my responsibility so mm-hmm. So again, to answer your yeah. question, we all need some really close, spiritual, wise people that can listen to us and allow us to get aware, become aware of what those core beliefs are. It seems that one of the biggest red flags for anyone and their sanity and their health and the spiritual maturity is for them to be independent and disconnected from community. And for as complex and loaded as someone's spiritual journey and like classifying, like, are you growing? Is, are things getting better? Are you, are you learning? Are you maturing? It seems like there is one clear indicator of the likelihood of someone having a fruitful spiritual journey or even just like mental health in general, like is relationships. Yeah. And I think, you know, I said this a couple of weeks ago, it seems like the biggest issue with uh, many, especially men, uh, though not just related only men, but the problem with many of us is that we haven't invested the time to build relationships. And I know the thing about, uh, you know, Monty and Randy being those friends that you've had, they've been in your life and you've consistently been investing in those relationships for decade, 15 years, something like that? Uh, 18, longer than that? 20 years? years? Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. Oh, so you're at looking least, at, at you know, 20... 18. yeah. But if you think about it, I, I even remember the, like you went and talked to Randy, you initiated that conversation with him, and then you, you and Monty and Randy started getting together. Both of you were uh, ACU Bible faculty, or not Bible, but ACU uh, faculty at the same time. And in some ways, like, it's like you've been watering that, uh, that plant, and you've been har- like working the, the soil, and eventually, 18 years later, you go through or 16 years later, you go through this major upheaval in your life. But what's happened in all that time of meeting together and praying together and sharing together is that what's happened is like this, this massive oak tree has come up out of the ground. And all of a sudden now you have something stable that you can depend upon that helps you get through that. You can lean on it because, you know, for the past 16 years, you've been working to build the kind of relationships that sustain you. And it seems like some of us, like we don't, reach out for help until it's kind of too late because we haven't built the trust, we haven't built the, the confidence, we haven't built the support system to enable us to withstand whatever's going to happen. And so the solution to a lot of this, I mean, not the solution, but one of the most important things you can do to get through this kind of stuff is 10 years ago, start investing in relationships. And if you hadn't done it 10 years ago, well, start today. But, right? Like, it seems like the reason that those relationships were so meaningful to you were because what you've done for the past decade and a half. Do you know how long it takes to have a 20-year relationship? 
20 years. I think the answer is 20 years. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's good math right and there. And if Adler is right, what many people are doing, and when I was your age, I was focused on mastery, I was focused on control, I was focused on pleasure. And mm -hmm. not exclusively, but I'm just saying, those kind of superseded building relationships. So I'm echoing what you're saying is it's very short-sighted to get caught up in just those three approaches to deal with life's condition that relationships are essential for good mental health. Yeah, yeah. For mental health, I think it's also essential for growth. I think it's essential for discipleship. I mean, following Jesus is not something you do alone. And, you know, unfortunately... One of the things that we found over the last couple of years, you know, COVID, post-COVID, is that people found that we can reprioritize our life. And we find a lot of people are comfortable to get spiritual content online by watching or, or you know, however they're going to do that. But in some ways, we're dealing with the consequences of isolation where you have fractured relationships. People, you know, are, you know, interacting in different ways. People are angry. People are upset. And so we're dealing with the consequences of isolation. But in a lot of ways, the response that many of us have chosen is to be more isolated. It's like the problem that you don't want to experience right now is solved by you fighting through the tough relationships to get to the other side of it. But many of us are like, you know what? It's tough, so I'm going to go back to my isolation, even though isolation is what puts you in the problem in the first place. Exactly. And I, and I don't think electronic, I'm out of my element completely, but uh, being on the Internet as the primary source of relationships, in my assumption, just cannot satisfy the demand that is there. Yeah. From my professional opinion, I completely agree with that, except for this podcast. This podcast can solve a lot of problems. <laughs> and as long as you download and listen every week, your life will be better. But outside of this, yeah, you're definitely right that it's... Yeah, yeah. In okay, some ways, well, like... Let me... Okay. Uh, let me... Uh, now, let me continue to develop this idea about core belief. So if... And I believe Adler is right. Inferiority is one of the core beliefs and it manifests itself in a variety of different ways. And for me, it was that I had this unrealistic expectation that I had to be the one to save, to rescue my wife from an illness. Um, I, I've asked my, myself questions about my generation. What are the core beliefs that influence my hermeneutics, that influence just my, the way that I understand God. And um, I, I really don't want to go into them uh, in any real depth per se, but just things like I grew up where certainty was absolute. That, yeah. that was, we had to be certain about things. And that um, facts were more important than meaning. And all of a sudden, I'm at a phase in my life, at a transition, where I'm not absolutely certain. And the more we look at our human condition, the more I think we recognize that we really do live by faith. Now, we may live in, by faith in God or we may live in faith in other things, but certainty is not part of the answer. 
that may not be as much your generation or post-millennial kind of thinking, but to me, that is, for your listeners, I think that's the next question that needs to be answered. What are some of the core beliefs that your generation are faced with that are influencing the way that you are either prepared or underprepared to deal with transition? Now, I think in my generation, there's a lot of people that have come to the conclusion, which you just mentioned, that certainty and the reduction of complexity into uh, very portable, regurgitatable, that's not a word, but it should be, um, simple statements that give you an easy answer, but they don't really actually answer the real complex things is something that's probably not worth holding on to. And so it seems like there's a lot of people, you know, nowadays who have a a level of comfort. Now, obviously there are some, um, very overly confident people that who, that have confidence that far out plays their actual competence. And there's a great deal of following that some of those people get. And I mean, even just like Peterson sort of like, absolute black and white. If you don't do what I'm saying, you're going to go to hell, that sort of stuff. I mean, you see that with political figures at like, you know, I'm the only one who can save this. Like people like that, like that still plays well. People, you know, would like to have the facade and the, like the, it's like eating sugar. Like everyone wants to eat sugar for dinner. Like I would love to have candy for dinner, but you know, like uh, in the end, that's not really satisfying. But at first, like it tastes really good. And so people like those sort of like hot-headed sort of big mouth people who can say a lot of stuff that they can't actually back up on. But for like, there's also a, a large number of people who are going like, well, I don't know if we really can know all this stuff, but we can find a way to be faithful even in the midst of the, uh, the gray areas of life. And so I think like we're reacting to like what you've described, but I'm curious, like, and this is your question, like w- what is that going to produce down the road for the next generation of people? Is it just going to be a pendulum effect where, okay, now all of a sudden we're okay with the gray areas. And so now even more so we're going to double down and want the blowhards who can, you know, tell us this is how you're going to save the world and this is how you fix your life in three easy steps. And so we're going to go that direction. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are, people really love basic principles and simple steps. And honestly, I, I want that from, you know, the person who's, you know, my mechanic, or I want my nutritionist or I want my doctor, just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. Cause I, I don't really want to wade into all the gray areas of those categories. I just want them to tell me. And so sometimes for things that you don't want to invest that much into, that's what we want. So I don't know. I don't know if it's ever going to really change. Yeah. Yeah. That's a open ended uh, answer right let there. Me throw, let me, pardon me. I say, that no, again. go ahead. Uh, no, you're good. Uh, let me, let me throw in another thing that, that uh, I'm kind of thinking about that okay. uh, I assume is not a high priority for you, but my phase of life, um, things, things change. And I'm thinking of uh, a book from success to success. And in that book, it talks about different kinds of uh, IQ, intellectual functioning, Okay. And all right. th- this goes all the way back to the 70s, a guy named Cattell, and he talked about the two major categories of intelligence. One of them is crystallized intelligence, oh, yeah. uh, and the other one is fluid, fluid intelligence. Yeah. yeah. And when you're younger, fluid intelligence allows you to deal with all sorts of things 
And uh, in this particular book, he basically says that fluid intelligence kind of peaks depending on your profession, uh, but probably by the time you're 45. So you're almost at no, your peak. I've got many years. Uh, many years. <laughs> the point is that crystallized intelligence, if you now play to your strengths, then you can approach life in a different direction. You may not be changing your paradigms as much. And the negative side of that is we call that as people get older, they get rigid, they uh, yeah. you know, are stuck in their ways. Those are the negative sides of it. On the other hand, crystallized intelligence allows you to gain more information at, with the potential of greater wisdom though a lot of your paradigms may not shift. And hmm. so I'm at a point now where I can feel, if you will, my paradigms are becoming a little more rigid. They're not quite as pliable as they once were. And it's giving me an opportunity now to gather more information and see them in a, in a maybe hopefully a more complete way. Uh, but but it doesn't mean that intelligence doesn't expand. It just mm -hmm. means there's a different form of intelligence that play to your that you need to play to for your strengths. Yeah, there's something about like as as you age, you would want what you have to offer is different, and that you have like a different level of maturity. It seems like that's what maturity is: is that you know you you don't have to play the game, and you don't have to know the hottest thing, and the, you know the number one billboards top hit or whatever, but you have like this greater sort of deeper understanding of life that isn't about like knowing a fact about the moment, but it's more about like knowing a truth about life. Right. I think that's part of aging. And there's this quote from uh, Ronald Rollheiser, who's been on the show a couple of times and a uh, priest down in San Antonio. And he talks about how in, like the first half of life, a lot of the struggles you have is like what you can possess and what you get and controlling your passions. But in the second half of life, there's a lot of what you have to do is learning how to not be bitter and to not have to be resentful and hold on to things that didn't go your way. And, and in some ways, like learning how to forgive yourself. And I feel like those are the, the ways, that, the mediums that we get into the, like this deeper level of, of wisdom and maturity that you, you can't like replicate outside of that. I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, uh, I'm trying to, um, there's a guy named You're typing Eric right now. Hoffer. You're looking something up. Okay. Yeah. Eric Hoffer has a uh, quote that uh, he's a recipient of the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom all the mm -hmm. way back into the 80s. But he had a quote that I've kind of modified a little bit, and it goes like this. In times of change... The learners inherit the earth, hmm. while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. That's good. Read that last, part again. I, that last part again. That last part again. That a world that no longer exists. Give me the, the line. 